Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses for an audience of entrepreneurs. And joining me today is Dave Nemitz. He is the co-founder of Bleacher Report. It's a sports media company that he and a few of his high school friends started, and then they sold to a Time Warner-based company. Um, and then he went on to found Inverse, a what I've seen it called, Dave, is um, a content site for men that you've said over the years wants to take an opposite approach or an opposite view on things. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's at a at a high level. Uh, I would say Inverse it it's, it covers a site for very geeky topics for kind of the fringe the fringe geek topics that that then reach the mainstream. Whether that's crypto, whether that's plant uh, medicine, you know, kind of sci-fi, and you know, kind of you know, out you know, really out there science, uh, whatever it is. And lately, what he's been doing is in spending more and more time investing in other startups and projects. And so, I invited you, Dave, here because I'm in the content space and I'm feeling a little bit. Um, Yes, I'm watching everyone get excited about the creator economy, but the fact that everyone's in the creator economy makes me feel like ah, maybe this is the wrong place to be. Maybe this is the like everyone trying to be a pop star in the 80s. And one of the things that I've noticed about you going back in time and seeing old Wall Street Journal articles and other articles, Politico and so on is, number one, the price that you sold your company for Bleacher Report seems to change from article to article. But the one thing that's consistent is them saying media has no future. You saying, I see something here that you don't. And I don't feel like they let you explain it well. And so I'm wondering, what do you see here today? So here's the plan. I thought we'd talk a little bit about that. Like, what do you see podcasting and media and content in general? Number two, what about the investments that you're making in Web3? Where do you see the potential? And number three, I always like to get the story of uh, how a person did it to try to understand what's to come based on what's happened. And we could do it all thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first, if you're a content creator, you're going to love them because they're HostGator, the site that will make it easy for you to host your own website and create your own content. And if you use my URL, I, I, I get a pat on the back from my sponsor, but you also get a big discount and it's a HostGator available at HostGator.com slash Mixergy. And the second, if you're doing email marketing, you should check out SendInBlue at SendInBlue.com slash Mixergy. Dave, what gives? What's the bottom line number? 175 million you sold for? 200 million? What was it? So let's let's clear the air on that once and for all. The total consideration uh, when uh, when Time Warner bought Bleacher Report was a little over two hundred million. Okay. The reported number often gets pegged at one seventy five because that's that's the actual amount of cash they shelled out for it. So they paid all cash, uh, which yeah, well, number one was a phenomenal uh, thing to get. Wow. Uh, but we at the time that uh, that we closed the deal, we had about. 20 million or so in the bank. So that got included as part of the kind of the total consideration as opposed to just going into their bank account. So when you add it all up, it was it was 200 million and change. Uh, but the reported number, I'm sure, you know, they they took the lower number on kind of what got put out there there in the official press release. So it made it look like a better deal for them. I feel like um, All Things D had an article at the time about how your investors were disappointed because they put something like, what was it, 50 million in and they were expecting a lot more. A little more. over 40 million. Uh, yeah, okay. a little over 40 million in total. 
And so were they really, disappointed? They that, huh? uh, I don't think so. I, I mean, look, the there were there were there wasn't a ton of disagreement in the room uh, when we were deciding whether to sell or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say, you know, some of the investors who had come in more recently, of course, you know, they took the point of view of let's let's talk it out. What would things look like if we if we uh, stayed the course? Mm-hmm. Um, but when it came down to it, it was a unanimous decision to sell and everyone was supportive. And even even Oak uh, Ventures, which put in 20 million like a year before we sold, they they doubled their money in a year. So they got they mm. put in 20 million to walk away with 40 a year later. They had a huge fund. So it's not like that that made or break or, you know, that was a big difference maker in their fund. But it was uh, it was still a good return for them on the, the time that their capital was deployed. I, you know, I've, I've talked to some investors after the fact who kind of said, oh, look at, you know, especially I think like a year or two later, uh, maybe it was a little bit more than that, but a few years later, Business Insider sold for like 400 million and their numbers were not quite as great as ours. And there were some people saying, oh, we should have held mm-hmm. out. But my point of view is it's not about the numbers always. I mean, our numbers were great. We were profitable. We were growing, but it really was that was the right partner at the right time. And you never know if something like that's going to come around again. And when you get a good deal like that, you just, you know, you don't always have to take it, but you really got to think about like the, you know, just continuing to to go forward with, without knowing, you know, if, if all the stars are going to align again, uh, it's, it's a big risk. What was your share of that? So, uh, less, less than you would think. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is something that, you know, I, 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 of course we all deal with our, our Twitter haters or just, you know, people kind of don't, don't think things through who think, see 200 million and think I'm, I'm sitting on the whole thing myself. So we raised about 40 million, uh, over multiple rounds. Um, but you know, part of the, one of those was a tough round we had to raise in, in like 2009 when, or, you know, early 2008 when the economy mm-hmm. was in the toilet. So we, you know, we, I think investors owned, uh, you know, around 50% of the company, but you maybe more than that at that point. Um, and then I, I had four co-founders. So, you know, between the co-founders, between, you know, the employees who, who owned a you know, good chunk of the company, you know, 20% ish, uh, and the investors, that's, it's a lot of ways to slice up the pie. You know, I still, I still walked away with enough to be, comfortable for for and well off for the rest of my life is as long as uh i don't i don't uh throw it all away or do something stupid with it more than 10 million Uh, uh, for your share uh less 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 okay yeah and then just just a a tad shy of that okay and so i should get into your story first but i've just been watching you like even when you were doing the twitter spaces getting into the conversations, getting into thoughts around uh, audio. As someone who looks at content, what do you see here in podcasting and content in the year t- almost 2022? So uh, I feel like I've got an interesting perspective on it because I've seen it from all sides. I've, I've built a you know full content operation with a massive editorial team. And then I, you know, I went and did Twitter spaces and started a newsletter and tried to do the whole thing just as a one person from the ground up. And 
I, I think, you know, you, you kind of alluded to this earlier. The bottom line is content is really hard. Uh, and it's really hard to produce consistently at a high quality output. Um, and that that's just, that's the reality of it doesn't, doesn't necessarily get easier. You know, the, even as you grow, even as you, uh, your audience grows, you're making more money, you've still got to put in the work uh, to produce, you know, new high quality content. Of course, you know, maybe if you're doing something that's, it's purely evergreen and you're building an archive of stuff that you, you kind of, you're building search equity around and, and it doesn't really change. That's a little bit different. But if you're, if you're putting a podcast out every week or, you know, some people I know doing it multiple times a week or a newsletter or uh, YouTube videos, it's, it's a grind. It's a major grind and it doesn't scale. It doesn't, the creation of it doesn't scale the way that software scales. You know, you write software once and deploy it, you know, as, as many times as, as people will use it, the consumption scales, which is the exciting part and which is the, the possibility in it. And I think that's what, but in order to get the benefits of that, you have to put in that, that work and that grind of creating it over and over and over. Uh, so there's a big payoff if you can do that, but the, you know, the, the work and the sweat and the, you know, frustration uh, and ups and downs required to get there is immense, which I think is why uh, a, a lot of people try and don't, you know, don't get there. Um, but I think the, what, what does excite me or what does interest me about the creator economy is I think there are more ways and more possibilities for individuals to do that and to kind of reach their own audience in uh, in a, a more focused way. Uh, but it's, you still, you got to do the work and it's, it's tough work. Would you invest in a bleacher report of 2022? Uh, it depends. I don't, I don't invest in a lot of pure play media Mm -hmm. companies. Uh, I, I think they're challenging business there. I mean, they're, they're great business if you can get them going, if you can get them to scale. And I think for like the, you know, the solo creator, it can be a really, a really interesting living and career. If you get it going the way you have the way, you know, kind of some of these, you know, one, one person and a newsletter businesses have gotten up and running. That's not really in my eye, an investable business. That's a, yeah. that's a lifestyle business that someone builds. It's great. The way, I mean, Bleacher Report when it started was much more of a uh, the the concept was a pl- more of a platform and more of a community, uh, you know that where content could in theory scale. We were leveraging a, a user generated model, mm-hmm. uh, so I would potentially look at something like that, especially layering in maybe some interesting Web three mechanics around it, where you could you could kind of dole out the value created by the community to those users and kind of, you know, build that value overall. I think something like that is interesting to me. If it was someone saying, I'm going to try to recreate what Bleacher Report is today, but just do it, you know, in a, with a slightly different tweak. I don't think I would invest in that. No, it feels like there's more possibility for more people to make a good living, like a really solid living from content and the killing opportunity is just not not nearly as big, right? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I mean, the, the real the... value of content. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. 
I was going to say, oh, you say you know, something values. I think that, yeah, the real value of content and something that was kind of exposed in the the rise and fall of digital media, um, which Bleacher Report was a part of, Inverse was a part of, uh, and you know, I've been a part of some some other players in that, is that the real value is building a deep connection with an audience. And I think in in kind of the the hype cycle of digital media where you saw back in like the mid uh, teens where there was a ton of VC money flowing into it and a bunch of like, you know, just really high expectations around the space as people started to believe, but investors, the operators, the I bought into this for a while is that it wasn't about the connection with the audience, that, that the value wasn't just building the biggest audience you could and building yeah. scale. And I think with the, the companies that got exposed were the ones that maybe they did that for a while, but they really weren't building a connection. And what's interesting about the creator economy is it kind of, because of its constraints, maybe a few creators will break out and build massive, massive audiences. And I'm sure we'll see something like that. And there's some that probably already do, you know, even that are under the radar, but like in reality have tens of millions of people, you know, hanging on their every word. But most of them, they're going to be more limited and focused in the people they're trying to reach. They're, they're focused on niches. They're focused on a, a, a smaller audience that really, really cares about what they have to say. And so it, all they're doing is building that, that loyal, authentic connection with an audience. So it's kind of more value just distributed much more broadly across all these right. different creators. Yeah. Okay. And so you were talking about the Web3 mechanics. I think there's something there, but I haven't seen anything yet that makes me feel like I, I've got a clear vision of what that is. The The thing that's interesting is how with an NFT, if you sell it, you can get perpetual royalties on it as it gets sold and changes hands. That's the part that feels like there's, that's where the potential feels, but seems to exist. But I haven't really seen any good examples of it. What have you seen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 a cliche, but it's it's still early. It's and I think it's it's true. I think the the NFT royalties uh, it is a huge uh, uh, feature that has a ton of potential. Uh, you know, you're seeing more platforms come out around music with that. I've seen some uh, focused around around film, um, and then you know, even with the you know, kind of the the more hyped PFTP NFTs, you know, for the creators, they're, they're getting royalties off the resell. And even if you own it, you could potentially build things around that where you can get royalties from developing that IP. Um, I, you know, I, it just, the, the kind of whole concept of, of web three, uh, and smart contracts is, is kind of money Legos and being to plug, being able to plug mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, kind of, programmatic ways to move money around and and either designate ownership or attribution really is pretty groundbreaking i mean there's stuff that that you could have done you know in web 2 with older platforms but it just it it would it requires kind of more more trust around a centralized arbiter of of kind of how that value is determined and there's just the, there's more friction involved i would say um so even thinking back to like uh, a a bleacher report uh, in the early days. You know, we were we were 
in the early days, you know, very, you know, uh, transparently, completely dependent on free content from a community. Uh, and we, you know, we didn't make false promises that community said, we're, we're going to create this platform. You're going to be able to meet a bunch of other fans, write, write stories, you know, about your team, get comments and get people to read it. And we'll provide that all for you. And it's, it's yours to do what you want with it. And we'll kind of, you know, provide some, some help and support, you know, from a kind of a community management standpoint. Uh, and, and we built a community that loved it. Uh, and ultimately as we, you know, as we tried to think, we started to think about monetizing that. We we ended up changing that and kind of going more professional content, primarily because that's what the advertisers wanted, uh, and they wanted higher quality content. And we kind of shifted. Uh, but before we got that far, we we did kind of think about these questions of like, oh well, what if we shared revenue with the community? If could we could we track? you know, what advertising ran on different articles and share a piece of revenue with a yeah. community or could we, could we, uh, you know, we thought about giving equity to our top community members and kind of raise that with, you know, our startup lawyers hated the idea and they're like, Oh no, you, no way. You don't want to do that. Like that's, that's a, a you know, just be a huge headache. And so we kind of, you know, we, we didn't really go down any of those paths and ultimately instead of doing like a rev share, we just decided to to shift to paying writers and we hired, you know, the best writers for our community, we hired and put them on salary. And then we went out and hired people away from, uh, you know, other you know newspapers and sports illustrated and whatnot. Uh, and, and that worked great. And the business kind of took shape in a different way. If you built something today and you did it in, you, you kind of leveraged what you could build with web three, you could, track that attribution of everything that someone writes, look at, you know, kind of track the revenue that's, that's generated and, and compensate them you know, in tokens and, and kind of give them a share of something that could then grow over time, you know, as the, the value of the community grows. And, and so you're starting to see things like that take mm. shape. It's still, it's still a little bit early. I don't think I've seen anyone build out like the exact version of that. But it's all there. It's all possible. Uh, and I think that's, Partially that's because what, what excites me. Micropayments through dollars is a pain. Micropayments yep. through coins is is potentially easier. Yeah. Right? As long as you, you that, don't do it on uh, the Ethereum chain where you're, you're paying the time right, gas Right, where fees. the gas fee is high. <laughs> but you can imagine somebody creating their own coin just for micropayments based on views, based on ad revenue, based on something and that's that's the part that's interesting right yeah definitely and it's have uh, you it's seen funny. anyone do I that was, i was telling yeah i <clears throat> i haven't yet exactly with that so we actually back in 2017 when crypto first caught fire we actually were were thinking about doing that at inverse uh and we covered we covered crypto as a topic and my engineers were all obsessed with it uh, and we kind of, you know, we got really excited about it. And I talked to some some people who were were real, you know, early evangelists for what smart contracts could do. And they were talking about this kind of stuff. Like you could you could start to reward your readers for the more engaged they are. You know, create a token. You know, reward your readers the more engaged they are, the more they share, uh, the more you know, and and it basically incentivize the community to participate and 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 help grow the site and, and grow along with it. 
and we kind of scoped it out and we, we were thinking about doing it. And then the crypto market crashed and kind of the world seemed to move on. And like the investors right. that I had mentioned it to seemed to cool off on it. And we were still a pretty early startup at the time and just to, decided we, we didn't have the, you know, the resources to go that far uh, down that path. Uh, so it's really fascinating to see it all come back now. And I think we will see this. I thought, you know, I saw a really interesting article uh, by, uh, by Jory De Bruin recently on uh, Forefront uh, about uh, why the New York Times should tokenize. Uh, and instead of, you know, so many people s- subscribe to a publication like the New York Times because they want to read the content, of course, but also mm-hmm. because it's a signaling thing. It's a status and identity thing to them. I am a New York Times reader. Therefore, I pay for the New York Times, whether, I, whether I'm going to go to the site or not. Um, and so for that, you know, for those reasons, you could build out a token where you're not just paying for a subscription, but you're buying that, that membership and, you know, kind of that, that piece of the New York times economy. And I think you could, you could say that for, uh, for quite a few publications or content creators. Yeah, there is something about being able to show what you have, what you care enough about to spend money on in a digital format. The example I come up with all the time is when my wife came over to my house for the first time before we got married, obviously, one of the things that she noticed was my bookcase with all those books, with all the underlines and the highlights and the selection. And she got to know me much more through the books that were on my shelf than through talking to me because we barely talked until then. And there isn't the digital equivalent of that. And so I could see saying that you've subscribed to the New York Times is a good one, saying that you've gone to an event is a good one, and so on. But I I like the idea that you have about um, somehow sharing revenue with the people who've created the content um, based on how much revenue their content is generating. Like a Facebook of crypto would also share back the revenue from advertising. There is a DSO, which is decentralized social networking where everyone has their own coin, but it doesn't do that ad model part where they're sharing it back. That's the part that feels like it's missing. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I think DSO is interesting. uh, And obviously, uh, you know, BitClout caught the the world by by storm uh, for a little while, or I guess the Twitter world. I don't know how many people outside of Twitter were paying attention uh, and, and kind of died down. I feel like that's that's just kind of like the indication that it is still so early days. Like you're kind of seeing these like, you know, these these foundational pieces get built out in real time. And it's like, all right, the the idea is there or like, you know, kind of the right intention is there, but it didn't have all the right elements to share revenue with the users or to, you know, kind of really convince people to move their social graph over. But I, I, it's only a matter of time. It's, I kind of like you it, know what, it's though? back in. Hmm? Sorry, I, we've got such a delay here. It's driving me nuts. I don't mean to interrupt. You know what, though? The, oh, um, the thing that stands out for me as I talk to you about that is that, that Twitter and Facebook and the other social media platforms are all based on advertising. So is Bleacher Report that maybe just as we're getting rid of centralized platforms, we're also getting rid of advertising as a monetary uh, like truism or necessity that you and I are thinking about how somebody could split the revenue from an ad that appears in a social network or on a 
publishing platform, but maybe that's not the answer. Maybe advertising just sucked for a long time and we accepted it because people weren't willing to pay. But in a world where people could play with micropayments, where there's NFTs, where there's crypto coins that are not directly related to Visa, MasterCard, transaction fees, maybe there's a way to even do away with that. It's possible. My my perspective on it, people have been predicting the death of advertising for a long time. And I think advertising is very, very hard to kill. And because? Because it, at the bottom line, it works. Uh, and uh, I mean, there's that old adage that, oh, you know, uh, you know, 50% of my advertising budget is, is, uh, you know, goes to waste. The problem is I just, I don't know what 50%, mm-hmm. uh, which is, which is maybe true in some respects, but you know, all these, these companies that spend a lot of money on, on marketing are, are doing it because it, it's how they reach their audience. You know, people, people wouldn't be ordering pizza hut pizzas if, uh, if pizza hut wasn't advertising, uh, or, you know, certainly a lot less, uh, and I think the, you know, well, there's a lot of problems with the advertising business model. It can be very parasitic and, you know, you know a lot of people hate it. Uh, and it's it directly or indirectly led to a lot of problems that we have currently on the web. Uh, you know, it does work and it also does drive so much of, it, of you right. know, kind of how commerce works on the, on the web and, and in real life. I think what we may see is just different, you know, different forms of advertising. You know, but a lot of people have assumed that, oh, Web3 is going to be the end of advertising because it's all going to be based on like, you know, direct peer-to-peer transactions and it's all decentralized. But while we haven't fully seen it yet, I believe that that we will see new forms of advertising. Maybe maybe instead of advertising, it's going to be airdrops, you know, instead of, of interruptive ads, you know, brands are going to find ways to, to drop tokens with value into your wallet, uh, you know, as a, as a way to, to convince you to, to buy their product or, uh, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's other, you know, kind of unique ways of, of, uh, you know, kind of creating value for an audience. So I think there, there may be a little bit more of a, a level playing field where hopefully some of the more parasitic, uh, uh, and kind of skeezy sides of advertising, uh, go away. But, uh, Advertising is going to be there. Speaking of advertising, my sponsor is HostGator, where people can host content. If you were to create today a brand new site, Dave, let's suppose Dave's coming out of high school, decides he's going to be an entrepreneur, doesn't have development chops, wants to start with content and then figure it out later. How would you go about, say, using HostGator to create a content site today? Well, I mean, what what... I think is is so great about creating a content site is you're there's endless niches out there that you can cover. And that's you know, that's there's just always always some new angle. Uh if you're a a you know aspiring content mogul to find that topic that's on the fringe of culture or that you, know, you and only a small handful of people to care about. And but you think is going to keep growing and and uh, and keep gaining traction, and to just be the expert on it or become the expert on it, and and just cover it better than anyone else. And and uh, you know I think the more the more niche the better. Uh, in, in most cases, uh, it's better to be you know the best in the world at a, a very very narrow topic than 
you know, to be, you know, just okay at, at, uh, you know, kind of broad over cover topic. And the great thing is now you, you know, you got HostGator, you, yes. you can throw together some, you know, there's, there's all sorts of platforms you can use to build, you know, build out your site. I'm a big fan of ghost open source platform, uh, that, you know, has a, a, a very low cost, uh, you know, version that's a managed version, or you can, you can set it up all yourself. Uh, you can you can use that. You can use ConvertKit. You can use Beehive, which just launched uh, for email. Uh, so there's there's just so many tools. Well, you know, I'll ask you what Beehive is in a moment, but um, I should say yeah. one of the examples that I've seen is this uh, guest that I had on years ago, Nick O'Neill. He created something called I think it was All Facebook, where he created a blog about Facebook. Freaking thing took off. I remember off. Nick O'Neill. You remember yeah. him? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do, do, do you know what he's up to now? No idea. He's like trying a bunch of different things. He created this like text to get a developer platform where you could just text a developer to do stuff for you. It's a bunch of different things. Hmm. The thing that took off was he got into NFTs. He created a site called The Nifty. Since you were talking about niche-based content sites about whacked out stuff or anyway, that seemed whacked out. People who are buying and selling images. He created a content site where he was just kind of tracking that, created a podcast on there. The thing took off. He now became the guy who's like at the center of NFT conversations. And uh, it all started with The Nifty, which is just a content-based site. All right. So I should close out the ad for HostGator by saying, if you've got some whacked out idea, like my friend Nick O'Neill, just go and create a, a site where I feel like Nick learned a lot and got connected with a lot of people because he was the guy writing about it. And that's always a great way to learn. Be the guy writing about it. 100%. And if 100%. you need a place to write, be the, uh huh. Yeah. You be, you be, you be the expert by first learning the topic. So you talk to everyone who yes. knows more than you. And then all of a sudden you're the expert that everyone wants to come to. Right. And it's the greatest hack. It's the greatest hack. It's still not used enough because too many people want to write about what they know instead of saying, I just, I'm figuring it out. I'm going to go talk to other people and create content about it. Anyway, Nick did that. And if you want to do it too on whatever topic you have, if you go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy, they'll give you a discount on the already low price and they'll really take great care of you. Hostgator.com slash Mixergy. What is that? What was that service that you were talking about for email? Uh, Beehive. Uh, so just launched, uh, Tyler Dank, uh, friend of mine, uh, part of the early morning brew crew. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, he was on the development side, kind of built out a lot of their in-house tools and then, uh, recently left to start his own thing. It's a kind of a creator focused, uh, uh, email platform. Um, so I'm actually, I've, I'm not on it yet, but I'm, I'm looking to kind of move my, my email service over to it. I'm not an investor yet, at least, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, just a fan. What's different about his email newsletter subscription-based company from all the others that are out there? Like, what is it? Review and um, Substack. Uh, so you know, their their kind of pitch is that they're just they're trying to be the most creator-friendly platform. Uh, I know that at least kind of at the the initial levels, it's free to use. I think they don't. I think they don't take a cut of your subscription right. revenue. Right, Substack, Substack takes a percentage. Does. They don't take a percentage. They just do straight up fee per user. Got it. And so, if you want to charge more, why should they get paid more just for doing the same amount of work? Okay. Exactly. All right. Um, and they're smart guys who've been, you know, they built 
built all these tools for morning brew. So they're kind of bringing like that same level of tooling to the the standalone newsletter writer. I didn't know that morning brew had a lot of uh, software built for it. They didn't have like a, a ton. I mean, they were using, I think a lot like morning brew, the hustle, which you know mm-hmm. I was also involved with kind of, you know, used third party ESPs. I can't, you know, they probably both like use multiples of them, but then they use the APIs to kind of build like, layers on top mm-hmm. uh, which is similar to what we did at, at bleacher and what i did at inverse i mean you know these esps are fairly hard to differentiate between they all kind of sell you on the you know slight difference in feature difference in pricing but at the end of the day they're just sending a lot of emails mm-hmm. uh but you know what you can do with them is then take the apis and then kind of build things that are a little custom uh we built at, at inverse uh we used amazon's uh email uh service uh amazon ses uh which was just kind of the cheapest and like the the most low frills it's just you know if you just tell them where to send the emails and they send them uh but they had great apis so we could build tools that kind of allowed us to do some like custom analytics and and uh you know kind of little personalization and things like that within the emails um what's your connection to morning brew i think morning brew started out as an email newsletter for business same with the hustle the hustle turned into subscription for content and of course their podcasting took off morning brood just expanded into content on on the web and on email right what's your connection to that yeah they're doing a lot of things they're doing like courses now um so i have no formal connection to morning brew uh other than i've i've known uh the founders austin and alex for uh several years now they they kind of came to to New York as young fresh out of college uh you know media founders and somehow we got connected and so uh would get coffee with them and and kind of share share some advice and uh you know have have ended up in that position with the a handful of founders uh um you know after kind of being being that same young uh you know fresh faced founder myself uh back in the day uh but yeah never had a formal relationship with it other than just being a big fan um i was uh the hustle uh, i was uh, an early advisor uh to them and to, to sam parr their founder and invested uh in the in their their early rounds oh, you did uh so yeah happy uh happy with their their growth and outcome and exit and uh their podcasts uh you know so the, the sam does uh it's awesome stuff I just saw Sam last night. That guy's jacked now. He's getting nice. bigger every time I see him. I know. I know. I don't know. Like, cause he's kind of like giving me some like fitness inspiration, you know, not to like go that far, but like, I gotta, I gotta respect him for just he's really going hard after it. You know, he's, he's living that, uh, that, uh, post exit founder <laughs> life. And like, you know you what? Know, you can, can go in one or really two directions. Or really good. fit. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and he's, he's doing it, man. He's doing the whole, the whole fitness influencer thing. And, uh, you know, I tip the cap to him. I, I don't, I guess I'm, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this or not, but so he bought a house in Austin that I guess he's tearing down and he and Neville Medora, another advisor to company, I guess went in there and started shooting it up with paintball or something. My kids are dying to go in there with him and shoot it up with paintball and just see what they could do in Ninja stars, their imagination's going. Um, but he is living the post sale life totally. Yep. Wow. That's, that sounds, uh, 
either amazing or like the beginning of a, a plot of a horror movie or something amazing i'm gonna say amazing 100 percent. i have to say i would like to be part of that experience with them um you didn't get to do anything like that did you did you get to do anything like horribly amazing after the sale horribly amazing yeah what's like the craziest Uh, thing uh, that you got to do the crazy thing that that we did i mean i did a lot of cool shit uh after i don't know if i can say that on the pod you can cool stuff um, great. Uh, after after selling Bleacher, um, the coolest thing we did that's kind of legendary uh, is we took the whole company to Vegas mm. uh, for a blowout weekend. Um, and this was it was like a 150 person company, so it's not like you know a little like gang of of yeah. uh, you know, little little group going around. Wow. It was like kind of a takeover. Um, you know, we, we involved basically chartering a whole Southwest uh, flight from San Francisco uh, where the company was based out there. Uh, I took a different flight because I, I didn't want to be responsible for what was going down on that chartered flight. So, uh, you know, I, I, I flew separately just uh, to keep a little distance, but yeah, we, we did that like maybe a month or so after we sold. And yeah. it was something that my co-founders and I, we, we paid for out of pocket and we kind of did it without telling Turner, Turner. that we were going to do it because, you know, you ask, ask for forgiveness, not permission. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it was just a, it was kind of everything you, ex- you expect people, you know, taking over the tables at the clubs. We had, there's one story about one guy who supposedly blew everything he made on the acquisition you know, both at the blackjack tables and maybe at the strip club. I, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but I hope not. Uh, and huh. it was, I mean, it was just, uh, it, I mean, it was great. Luckily, no, like nothing extremely bad happened. So fortunately we avoided any, anything scandalous. Uh, but that was like the big blowout. And then I, you know, I did some personal stuff just to like go blow off steam. What'd and, you do? Uh, uh, traveled around my wife and I it was before we had kids. So we went and traveled around Asia for like two months. Um, and that was like, I wrote my, it was right after I left bleacher and I wrote my resignation letter, like from the, the tarmac of, of the plane taking off to go to Japan. It was wow. a very like poignant mo- moment there. Um, and then like later we went and went on this, this big sailing trip around the, the Mediterranean on a, like a 50 foot sailboat and, uh, with, with some friends. So we kind of just like, I got to check out a little bit and just like, you know, I was, I was 29 when we sold the company. So go do some crazy travel and experiences that, uh, uh, you know, just, you know, had, had the unique opportunity to do in that moment and, and kind of live that life. Do you feel like you lived a good life as, as a high school kid? Cause I'm looking at you, you don't look like you were broken as a child and needed to fight back. <laughs> Just talk to an entrepreneur. He was, Ruben told me that he, he didn't know that he was in the U.S. illegally until later in life when it came out that he couldn't get health insurance, couldn't go to Harvard because his family was undocumented. And it's like, he was, like, he's ready to fight the world and fight for people like him because of that. You don't have any of that. That broken on the inside, got to fight to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say, you know, I, I lived a, a comfortable, uh, life growing up. I grew up in the, 
in the Bay Area, uh, you know, south of San Francisco and uh, had a, you know, nice suburban life and, uh, you know, good, good family life. You know, I think if anything, I was, I was just kind of a geeky kid, um, you know, a little, little geeky, little dorky. What was your geeky uh, thing? Did you sell baseball cards? Was that one of the things? Uh, very like huge comic book nerd, like collecting X-Men cards and, and that kind of stuff. And like, uh, you know, I did like one thing I did, I, I think when I was in like fifth grade, I tried to like start like a perfume company and went, I, I like collected like, you know, just plants from like the backyard and try to like grind them down into perfumes and like Ooh. mix them with water and sell them door to door. So that was my first entrepreneurial experience. Uh, uh, didn't, didn't go so well other than the people that took pity on me. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, it was kind of geeky, dorky, you know, had a group of, you know, similarly dorkish friends and, you know, who speak some of whom became my, my bleach report founder, co-founders. And that's kind of for my, like, entrepreneurial, you know, my, my, the two companies I've, I've built, you know, kind of reflect that background. Like I I grew up kind of a dork and getting, becoming a sports fan was a way to like, try to become cooler and like be a little bit more, more of a bro. Uh, Uh You know, I became like, you know, really hardcore into sports in high school and that kind of, you know, transitioned into Bleacher Report. And then when I started Inverse, it was a little bit more of a throwback to, the stuff I was into before that and, and the stuff I used to geek out on. Um, you know, I used to love this, this magazine, Omni magazine. That mm-hmm. was kind of like a precursor to wired. I don't know if you ever, ever read it. Uh, but it was like out there science and science, it was out there fiction science and, and super expensive. Uh, really? I, I don't remember. Uh, it was, it, well, it was, uh, it was published so. by, uh, it was, Bob Guccione. Yeah. Uh, was a, the guy who the, published yeah, Penthouse, Penthouse Magazine had it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And he was he was like a big like, you know, kind of sci- you know, extreme science and like longevity uh, you know, kind of uh 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 nerd too. So that was like his whole thing. But yeah, I was I remember like really being affected by that when I was young. Uh and so Inverse was kind of a, a a throwback to that uh, in a way and also recognizing that like a lot of those ideas, which were were kind of fringe and out there and and really really nerdy at the time, have now become cool and mainstream, and like people hang on Elon Musk's every word and all that kind of stuff. I should say this interview is also sponsored by Send in Blue. When you need email marketing that will not jack up the price on you as you build up the business. It's just fair from the beginning, fair at the end with marketing automation so that you can tag people based on what they're interested in and only serve them the content that makes sense. Like the example I always give is if somebody buys, don't send them endless messages trying to get them to buy. They bought it. Now send follow-up messages. Well, marketing automation software done right will do that for you. And if you go to sendinblue.com slash Mixergy, they'll give you a discount on their already low price and they'll keep that price from getting jacked up as you build up your business a lot of companies will like get you stuck on them and then raise prices, not send in blue, not, uh, it's always fair. Go to sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. I am looking, by the way, to see what did Omni Magazine cost? You know what? I, I might be wrong. I'm looking at a 1984 cover image of it and it's it's only 350 so not that much. But it is very computer, very futuristic, always things that I think even to this day have not come, not come to fruition, but I I like that kind of dreaming. 
Yeah. Um, I'm looking at your, I've got so many tabs open here. I'm looking at your angel list profile. It links to your reverb ventures, which is your syndicate on angel list. Freaking love angel list, by the way. Um, wish everyone just used them. And it says that you, that you're investing in web three. You believe web three will transform the relationship between creator and fan and create new forms of expression and new economic models for media. Do you see any now? Is there any Web3 company that you've invested in that we can talk about here to understand how how you're seeing the future? Um, you know, the the ones that, you know, there's I think everything right now is still a little on the stealthy side, but I can I think I can talk kind of generally um about you know kind of what I'm seeing like the themes that that uh mm-hmm. that I'm starting to see uh, you know, come up, uh, you know, pretty regularly. Uh, you know, I think the, the big one is just, you know, building communities by, you know, through incentivizing your, your community by, by sharing the upside with them. Uh, you know, you see that this, you know, with a lot of the NFT communities, which I'm not like, I I believe in NFTs, the long-term potential of NFTs. I think there's a lot of hype and noise around kind of the current space of NFTs, but like the ones that are doing it well are selling a community community of people on a vision that if you buy into this NFT, you're not just getting a, you know, a JPEG or, you know, kind of the, Mm -hmm. the, the rights to a picture or whatever. You're getting membership into a club. You're getting, you know, IP that we're gonna we're gonna develop, and you're gonna you're gonna share on the upside of that. You're gonna get access to future assets or you know future opportunities that we're gonna deliver just to this community. So I think that's that's a really powerful idea, uh, and it, that that just hasn't really existed uh, in that same way, you know. For, for most people in, in, you know, kind of cultural artifacts that they, they get into. I mean, you know, most people are not investing in, in art or in, in fine art or in, in, you know, kind of high-end collectibles. You know, maybe you see that a little bit with, with uh, you know, sports cards now and kind of the way that's come back. But um, I think that's, that's just a really powerful concept uh, that, uh, that we're going to see play out in different ways. I think, I'm really excited about kind of collaborative creation uh, and you know, what that can empower for through web three, um, you know, collaborative creation, collaborative action. Like there's this, the big story right now is this constitution DAO and uh, you know, this group of people that are banding together to, to pool money, to buy a copy of the constitution. Um, really cool in theory at the end of the day, you know, Oh, just, I don't know. Owning a piece of the constitution is cool if you want to do it. Um, the interesting thing to me is they want to then partner with, uh, you know, an institution like a Smithsonian, put it on display and use that display to promote the power of Web3 and to kind of get the, the word out there for more people, uh, you know, to uh, to be aware of that something like this is even possible. Uh, but, you know, I, th- I think I like to think a few steps further around. All right. Well, you know, could you could you get a group of people together and and create something that, you know, could then, you know, whether it's a product, whether it's a, you know, some, some kind of intellectual property where everyone who's, who's contributes is then able to, to get a, 
declared ownership share in that and kind of, you know, share it, share in the growth of that over time. I mean, you think about like the, the classic concept of, you know, these like fan fiction communities and all these people who, who kind of toil away building worlds around uh, other people's IP, like all of a sudden you could, you could do that and you could own a piece of it. And if the idea that you contribute really becomes the idea that takes off, uh, you you can get rewarded for that. Uh, I think that's a that's a pretty powerful idea. You know, I saw an example from Greg Eisenberg. He's um, the founder of Late Checkout, which is this uh, this design studio. Um, and what he did was, I think he created a fintech class. I can't find it. Where he said, "Look, I'm selling this. Here's how much you have to pay in order to get in." less money to be one of the first people you get the early bird pricing more money if you're if you're coming in later but i think the way he did it was he said you're getting a community in addition to ed- the education and you can sell your ticket to somebody else after you're done with it which to me made sense if i understand this right i think he he does a bad job of marketing his own stuff a better job of marketing other people's stuff so i don't fully i don't think i fully get it but the beauty of that was that if you help him be a better teacher, if you help the community get more out of the program, then your ticket into the program becomes more valuable when it's time for you to sell it. And so there's an upside for community members and they're not just sitting back with their arms crossed saying, all right, Greg, what do you got for me? I paid you all this money. Now you better show me that this is all worth it. It's more like I paid you all this money. Now let's work together to make it worth even more so that I could sell it to the future student for more money than I paid for. It feels like that's that's on the verge, yeah. right? Yeah, no, it's 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 there. You see people doing it and there's yeah, it's a pretty kind of mind-blowing concept when you step back and think about it. Like, you know, usually you you know, you pay for access to something that's you you paid, you you get, you know, hopefully you get value out of it, but that's kind of done. To be able to do that, to get value and then to be able to have just the, you know, the 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 ownership, the piece of it that you you acquire by paying for it, then becomes something that is liquid and tradable. It's pretty incredible, and you know, I like you know something that we're just kind of starting to see now, but it, I'm excited about because I'm I'm a huge music fan and live music fan. Uh, is kind of the, how this applies to uh, to artists and musicians. Uh, you know, you're seeing it with royalties as we talked about before, but I always think about kind of the idea of like the people who get into the band before they were big, who were like the early hardcore supporters and, you know, the way that they used to get, you know, kind of, that's a status thing in itself. People like to brag mm-hmm. about it. People like to share that they were at one of the first concerts or that they got the, the early tour t-shirt or whatever. Um, and that's clearly something that people value already. Um, and if you think about being able to then harness that and, create an economic component where a band can have a token or an NFT collection uh, that they're releasing with, you know, when they're early. And if you're a believer in them, if you're an early supporter, you can buy into that. And that's something that can actually grow in value and you can either later sell off and, and actually profit from that, or you can just continue to, to own it and and share it as a badge of honor. Um, And, by doing that, you're also supporting the band and supporting their growth. Um, it creates a really, a really interesting incentive structure um, that uh, that plays off 
kind of feelings that people have already and, and motivations they have already, but, you know, then adding this extra component to it. Yeah, I'm seeing uh, that the idea that you can invest in creators, for example, is starting to come come together. No one's got a real platform, I think, for doing it. We were talking about DSO and BitCloud. They were trying to do that, but it's, it's not exactly working. Yes, you could invest in a yeah. creator on those platforms, but they don't get all the money. So what's the point? All right, let me close out with this. I went to inverse uh, on similar web to get a sense of how much traffic is inverse.com getting. And I thought it'd be small. It's 13.5 million in the last 30 days. Dude, where'd you get all that traffic? How did, how did so many people show up there? And I had no idea how big it was. And I know you're not uh, so with actually, them now, I mean, but still. I'm yeah, I'm not there anymore. So I don't know the latest numbers. I mean, when I was, you know, I don't think they've fallen off because, you know, similar web, I don't think similar web tracks mobile. I think that's just desktop traffic. Or no, they do track mobile. I don't know. Any, oh, they do. Well, yeah. The the numbers. I mean, we were averaging like twenty to thirty million uh, a month uh, users when you know, kind of the last year when I was there. Uh, I mean, that's that's kind of what I do: is build audience. What do you do? And, you know, give me a, give me a like, sense of what you do to get more in, people to come to content site. So so both Inverse and Bleacher Report are primarily built off search audiences. Uh, and it's it's a pretty basic formula. It's, it's use SEO for growth and acquisition and use email for retention. Uh, and uh, yeah, SEO is, is, it's a numbers game and it's a time game. It's just, you have to create a lot of content. You have to create the right content and kind of be the best authority on the topics that you cover. And you have to be extremely patient, you know, for that, that content to rise up the rankings and, and, you know, for it to get, uh, you know, to kind of grow in value in the index. Uh, and you have to do a lot of other little things, right. But like, that's the basic level. Um, and we did that first at Bleacher Report for years. It took us years to kind of rise up those rankings. And then we did it inverse and it took years and it's just, you know, kind of a game of like, you know, slowly rising until you, you kind of hit that inflection point. Uh, and, and that's, that's, the, the kind of growth lever for reaching new people uh, and then the channel to, to retain people and bring them back and, and, and make them loyal is email is getting people in, get, getting to the site, asking, for, you know, waiting for the right time to ask them for their email and kind of, you know, presenting them with a compelling offer. We're going to send you an email with all the best stories about your favorite mm-hmm. sports team or your favorite uh, you know, comic book cinematic universe, uh, and, and then delivering on that, uh, and creating a, a compelling, uh, email product that, that people want to keep opening and keep clicking on. And that's, that's basically, uh, you know, at a very basic level, what built Bleacher Report and what built Inverse. I looked it up in SEMrush and yeah, it's, it gets millions a month from search. SEMrush has 6.7 million from search. But I had no idea. All right, Dave, thanks so much for being on here. Yeah, no, Andrew, this is great. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, this has been a a very fun conversation. Uh, It's great to do it. You bet. And I want to thank two sponsors who made this interview happen. The first, if you're into content, need a good publishing platform, uh, you can do it right on HostGator and it'll scale with you. Go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. And second, email marketing done right. 
at a price that won't just get jacked up on you, go to sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. Dave, everyone, thanks.